Uh, And let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father, this is your word that we've heard read uh, and about to hear preached. And so we pray in your kindness and by your spirit, please find in our hearts good soil. Give us ears to hear and to understand and to apply. And in your kindness, please use me in my great weakness to speak clearly and faithfully as I should. Uh, Produce fruit in us for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A few years ago, I was uh, attending the footy, a classic Hawks v Geelong game, and I went with a family, uh, and we weren't able to all sit together at the game, and so I ended up sitting half the game with one family member who supports the Hawks, Uh, and it just so happened that for that first half we spent together, the Hawks were getting completely smashed. And so I sat with one very unhappy young boy until half-time when I changed seats and sat with one very happy Geelong supporter. But it just so happened in that second half that the Hawks made an almighty comeback and won. But ultimately, for the entire match, I sat with very unhappy footy fans, which made, of course, for a fairly complex train ride home. One was kind of silent and grumpy, while the other couldn't stop talking about the great game that we'd experienced. Uh, And for your enjoyment, I even have a photo of that unhappy Geelong fan who may or may not look like someone in this congregation. But the one event produced two very opposite reactions, as most good sporting games do. And this is no great mystery to us, right? When we go to footy or sporting events, there's usually a particular bias towards one of the teams. But mixed reactions to the same event is actually something we are very familiar with. When my wife and I watch gardening shows, our responses could not be more different to the content. But perhaps a bit more seriously, as we've come out of lockdown, some have been excited while others are anxious. As we've resumed meeting together as a church, some are eager, others are cautious. The same event The same news is often met with very divided, even opposite reactions. This is something we experience regularly in life, and for some, for most of the time, the reasons are clear, but other times they are not. And so I wonder tonight, have you ever thought about why the gospel, why the good news of Jesus has such mixed reactions and responses as people hear it? The gospel is proclaimed, some are confused, others are offended, Some are curious, some are bored, some are moved and their lives are changed while others move on. Why is this the case and what should we make of it? As we arrive at chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel tonight, Jesus does seem to have an apparent problem. This is point one on your outline. Over these past few weeks as we've gone through Mark's Gospel, we've seen Jesus' popularity grow rapidly. The crowds flock to him as he heals many simply by speaking. He's driven out demons, cleansed leprosy, made the paralytic walk. People are coming from everywhere. And despite his miraculous power, Jesus has made it clear that his priority is to preach. That was his purpose, he told us back in chapter 1. He's come to preach the good news of God, that the reign of God has come near, that through Jesus, God is setting our world right. He's bringing justice to his enemies, peace for his people, just as he promised. But as we follow Jesus' ministry in Mark 1 to 3, 
as he's preached good news to huge crowds, the reactions and responses are mixed, to say the least. If you can remember, the scribes, they opposed him when he healed the paralytic. The religious leaders got upset when he welcomed Levi. He was accused of being demonic when he cast out demons, as we heard last week. His own family thought he was out of his mind. The religious and the political leaders have decided he needs to die. And in the middle of all that, there are these 12 misfits who have decided to leave everything behind and follow him. And then in this chapter, the parable that Jesus tells, it actually presumes what's going on, right? The story of the sower and the seeds and the different soils. Jesus says it's about the word going out and the varied responses, the reactions it receives. And even in the parable, three of the four soils don't bear fruit. And so what are we to make of this? Surely if what Jesus was preaching is really good news, we would expect something different something a little more encouraging. Surely preaching God's word would have a better impact than this. This is something that I've often thought about uh, as a Christian. In my first year at Bible college, I uh, was invited back to my hometown to preach my first ever sermon. It was a big deal for me. And so I courageously invited one of my best friends who wasn't a Christian to come along. I preached on my favourite passage, Ephesians 2, the grace of God to make us alive when we were dead. And afterwards, one of my old Sunday school teachers came up to me, tears in her eyes, to say how encouraged she was by my sermon. But my friend that I invited, well, he gave me the Aussie pat on the shoulder. He said, I spoke well, but the whole thing was just super weird. (laughs) Why does this happen? Why do the responses vary from hostility to apathy to joy to life-changing loyalty? Is the gospel that Jesus proclaims really good news? I hope you noticed, as uh, Jane read for us, that in Mark chapter 4, things are really slowing down. Over the past three chapters that we've looked at, Mark has set a cracking pace. We've seen rapid movement. From town to town, synagogue to homes, from fishermen to whole crowds, Jesus has preached and healed, driven out demons. But in chapter 4, they meet a crescendo. Just like last week, the crowd again is so big, verse 1, that Jesus enters a boat, just like he did last week. Not to avoid being crushed like last week, this time it's going to serve as a beautiful floating platform for him to preach from. And what we just heard read is actually the longest teaching of Jesus that Mark writes down in this gospel. And he teaches them a parable, a parable that both presumes and explains the varied, the even hostile responses to his teaching. Because what on the surface looks like a problem with Jesus' teaching actually turns out to be the surprising purpose that he intends. This is point two in verse 10. Jesus tells the parable to this massive crowd floating in his boat. Then we are invited in verse 10 to the inner conversation that Jesus has with his disciples as he explains the purpose of his teaching. So keep your Bibles open, Mark chapter 4, verse 10. When Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables 
so that they may indeed look yet not perceive, they may indeed listen yet not understand, otherwise they might turn back and be forgiven. Jesus is saying that his preaching deliberately divides people. To the disciples, those who come to him, the secret of the kingdom of God is given to them. They are the ones who get it as they come to Jesus to get the explanation. But to everybody else, those outside, the whole thing is just a parable. Now, often when we think or talk about parables, we describe them as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or a relatable story, an illustration to understand spiritual realities. But notice that Jesus actually says the opposite. Parables are not quaint stories to help us grasp an idea. They're unclear on purpose. Parables are a way of teaching designed to get us to to think harder to dig deeper into the story and find the real meaning. They were often comparisons or proverbs or sayings or stories like the one we've read tonight. And Jesus uses parables deliberately to divide, to reveal to some and conceal to others. Mark makes it clear that this is Jesus' clear goal in teaching, verse 33. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like these as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. His word divides. It brings salvation to some, but judgment to others. That's why in verse 12, Jesus explains his ministry by quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah was commissioned in chapter 6 to preach to Israel. And God told him the words that Jesus quotes, that Isaiah was going to go out and preach, but the people would not understand and they would not respond. His preaching to them was actually God's judgment on them because they had closed their ears to God's word and hardened their hearts. And so Jesus tells the parable of the seeds and the soils here to explain what we've been seeing in Mark's gospel, but also what we know from our experience. As God's word goes out, it will always divide people as it reveals and conceals, brings salvation and brings judgment. That's its purpose. Because I don't know if you noticed, the story, the parable might seem very strange to us. The sower seems actually careless and wasteful as he kind of haphazardly throws some seed out from his back step. Some goes on a path, some goes in the weeds, and he just kind of gets lucky that some of it manages to find some good soil. But it was actually common practice in the ancient world to sow and then plough. The land was not cleared or prepared before sowing. And when it says path, don't think nice concrete path. Think just a strip of dirt that was compressed by foot traffic. But this is the whole point. The seed, which Jesus says is the word, the gospel that he and the apostles and is still preached today, it's to go out broadly, to go out indiscriminately, despite the mixed responses that will come, the seed will find good soil. And so the question that you and I are meant to be left asking as we listen to the parable is so clear. Which soil are you? What happens to the seed, to God's word as we hear it? 
That's the clear point of the parable and the whole passage. Are we actually listening to God's word? As Jesus says in verse 9 and then repeated in verse 23, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Jesus is telling us that God's word is always going to have these mixed responses, but we should make sure, we should be careful that we are the one that actually bears fruit. And what Jesus describes in the parable is very familiar, but actually very shocking. We know it from our experience. I certainly do. It's even what is happening right now. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear it, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. This is what we've seen so far in the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the person that hears the gospel, maybe even sits in church for years, but nothing actually sinks in. It's like water off a duck's back. Nothing is heard. And although that might actually shock us, I hope you realise that it's possible to be in church for years, for all sorts of reasons that do not include Jesus. Whether it's the benefit of community-friendly people or just a routine that we've had for years. Yet despite being here, the word never gets through. It's never given a second thought. And although they don't realise it and perhaps they would even deny it, the struggle is spiritual. Satan, the enemy of God, comes and takes away the word. The description in these verses is so simple. The event is so common, but it's actually still utterly tragic. The wonder of Christ's death, the joy of following, the hope on offer, is never actually understood or grasped. And this could be you right now. You've heard sermon after sermon. You've chatted with Christian friends, but never actually thought it mattered. Never thought that your sin was serious and deserved God's judgment. Never engaged with Christ's claim upon your life, given time to ponder the depths of his love for you. If that's you, you need to know that you are actually being robbed. Robbed of joy, distracted from eternal life and peace with God. That's the first soil. Then there's the second, verse 16. Like seeds sown on rocky ground, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root, they are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. This is what we probably would call short-lived conversion. You've probably seen it. Someone that joyfully hears the gospel and responds, they might have even been tears of joy. What they hear, they like, forgiveness, love from Jesus, eternal life and a sense of purpose. The word is heard and they're happy to hear it. But then challenge comes, what Jesus calls distress or persecution. Maybe it's conflict with a friend or a family member about their new faith or perhaps just feeling small and pressured as culture moves away from biblical ideas. Maybe it's just general hardship in life that their faith can't handle. Whether it's the cost at work, 
or with a family member, the loss of friends or just being excluded because of your commitment to Jesus or maybe just the trials of life like sickness or loneliness, following Jesus just disappears. This is the kind of thing, uh, sadly, we see all the time in youth ministry, as this image suggests. Whether it's the initial response that they hear a talk, uh, go on a camp, but when going back to school and mixing with friends, it all just seems too hard. Following Jesus becomes private, then occasional, and then it's gone. But I want to suggest to you, uh, don't let the satire of that image on the screen or the familiar nature of this response make it any less horrid. There is nothing trivial, nothing comical about short-lived Christianity. And you'll find that this is the case when you speak with people that go through this. I was speaking with one of our youth uh, at the end of last year who I think actually fits this category exactly. She is sure that she has made the right choice in leaving Jesus because ultimately he's not that good. And she deserved much better than the health challenges she had to go through while being a Christian. But do you actually hear what is going on in that statement? It's really just the wickedness of Genesis 3, isn't it? To decide that God is wrong, that what he promises isn't that good, what he warns isn't that serious, and you're better off doing it your way. And so it's worth asking yourself tonight, does your trust in Jesus actually have any depth? I think there's a temptation with this parable. It's easy to read of the seed and the soils and just think about all the other people they apply to. But what about you? Have you been shocked by how easily your faith is shaken? Are you quick to abandon being thankful, to pray, to keep meeting with Christians, to listen to God's word when life circumstances change or are challenging? All Christians need to cultivate deep roots in our trust in Jesus so that we can endure trials that will come. Challenging circumstances, whether it's health or your relationships, your finances or opposition for your faith, these are not possible outcomes in the future. We should expect them. Jesus tells us to. Trials and oppositions will come, but what will they reveal about us? Will we have any depth? Will they expose us? Or will they actually strengthen us as God refines our faith, as he says he will in Romans 5 and James 1 and 1 Peter 1? We should be eager to cultivate depth in our relationship with Jesus so we will persevere. We see that in the third soil, that yes, it grows a bit longer than the second but still ultimately does not bear fruit. Verse 18. Others are like seeds sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. 
Notice we move from external pressure in the second soil to an internal struggle in the third. Uh, This is what we're going to see in many of the crowds that follow Jesus. And although the description of what happens is brief, it's the kind of thing that happens often and is often slowly, like over years. And notice how broad the things are that Jesus says can choke the word. Worries of this age, deceitfulness of wealth, desires for other things. He's being super inclusive on purpose. The word is choked out by everything that gets in the way, anything that distracts us from what's truly important, what we should be doing as Jesus' people. Again, this is not unfamiliar to us. Life is full of opportunity and experiences that we can give our time and our energy to and then let it consume us and take over our priorities. Like a commitment to sport that takes over your availability to meet with God's people, whether it's Sunday or in growth group. A commitment to success, whether in work or study or anything else, that consumes all of our time, that we're just now too busy or too tired to read our Bibles, to pray, or to keep meeting with others. Whether it's chasing career satisfaction or financial security, the deposit for a house, balancing your budget, time constraints just to fit everything in. For the Christian, it can be the slow death of faithfulness. And I've seen this happen to youth and older Christians, to peers, professionals and students, to the wealthy and the unemployed, single or the married. We should not be thinking that we are immune or this could never happen to us. If you're a Christian, you should ask, are you slowly but surely making compromises? Have you become unwilling to be challenged by your leaders or your pastors, allowing yourself to redefine what Jesus expects of you? Because you know what's good for you in this season of life. What is it that distracts you, enables your sin, promotes your compromise? Perhaps the key question, do you love Jesus more than your potential career or success? Do you trust him with your income and health? Do you seek him for your future plans? Let him decide what stays or goes, whether service and generosity will feature or not. Is the word in your life thriving or being choked? That's the third soil. Then finally, the fourth, the good soil. Verse verse 20. Those like seed sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. Those that hear the word and produce fruit. No short-term conversion over a weekend, no slow death of choking weeds, but real and lasting change. Being fruitful is all about visible faithfulness, where our priorities, our habits, our words, our relationships, our love are transformed because of the Lordship of Jesus. Fruit of living like Jesus and for Jesus because we listen to Jesus. Notice that all four soils hear the word, but the good soil welcomes it. There's no casual relationship here, a resolved commitment to God's word. 
Because it would be wrong, I think, to, to read this passage and to think this last soil, the good and fruitful soil, well, this is just the Christian that it's easy and it's automatic for them. But the good soil is not immune to the challenges of the first three, but actually perseveres through them. Good soil cultivates depth and weeds out the distraction and the confusion. Because it's worth asking, put yourself in the position of those first listeners. What would you have done as you listened to Jesus? You've followed him for weeks now. You've seen the lame walk, the leper cleansed. You've heard him teach about forgiveness in the kingdom of God. You've watched the crowds gather in amazement. You're excited. You're enthusiastic to follow Jesus. And then before the biggest crowd, he gets in a boat, a floating platform, stands up and then tells a story about a farmer and some seeds and the growth that it does and doesn't get. No interpretation, no clarifying statement. That's it. What would you have done? What if someone next to you kind of gives you the nudge and says, what was that all about? And you just say, I've got no idea. Some things he says are great. Sometimes he just says weird things. The guy's kind of kooky and I love it. Would you just move on, right? Some things are clear, some things aren't, some things you get, some you don't. Or would you long for clarity to grasp what he's telling you so you can live by it? We see it in those first disciples, verse 10. They come to him for understanding. They're not distracted and they're certainly not content in their confusion. They come for answers. And Jesus tells them that the secrets of the kingdom of God are given to them, to those who come. So what kind of soil are you? This parable is calling us to ask, how are we listening to God's word? To examine not just our initial response or our conversion, but the ongoing place of God's word in our lives. Do you have ears to hear? Not because it's easy for you or or automatic, but because you long to get it, to understand and apply it. Because notice, it actually does take effort. We see that in verses 22 to 25. Verse 21, Jesus says to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. Now at first, and you might be thinking this, this seems very unrelated to what we've just been looking at. Jesus begins by talking about the purpose of a lamp. Not to be hidden, don't put it under a basket. It's meant to be elevated to shine brightly. A lamp's purpose is to shine, not be hidden. But then he says in verse 22, there is something hidden that needs to be revealed, and it will be. The contrast is between present hiddenness or veiledness that will eventually be revealed. And he's actually speaking about himself, about his own ministry and the proclamation of the word. He's preaching of the gospel. As we've seen in Mark so far, his true nature and his power, his identity is hidden. It's it's unrecognized by so many. But the day is coming when the veil 
will be removed and everyone will see clearly the reality of King Jesus and his rule. That revealing began with Jesus' death and resurrection as the power and the promise of the gospel was confirmed, but it's going to be fully realised when Jesus comes back in glory to bring final salvation and judgment. And so although we live in the present hiddenness and experience all those mixed responses that Jesus described, we are assured that this is not going to be the case forever. Hence, Jesus calls us again at the end of the story, verse 23, to have ears to hear, because the way we listen, how we listen, matters for eternity. The gospel Jesus preaches, the good news that we've been hearing and are hearing, this is the very word of God. God who loves us enough to send his son to die. His word that will bring us into right relationship with him, to be in his kingdom and to flourish under his loving rule. And in knowing that, we should therefore invest in our hearing. Verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you and more will be added to you. Whoever has will be, uh, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. Jesus uses a, a very simple example familiar to his original hearers. He essentially says the size of the basket, the measure that you bring to buy grain, well, that's how much you get. Bring a small measure, get small. Bring a big one, you'll get big. And Jesus says we should come to him, therefore, with big ears. We will get out what we put in. That's what he's promising. So again, you should ask, what measure are you using? How much time and energy and focus are you giving to listen to Jesus, to hear God's word? And I think this is a good question for us to ask and reflect on because there is always the temptation to put the responsibility on others. The passage was too confusing. The sermon, well, it was long and boring. My small group leader, well, they don't make it clear enough for me. How am I meant to understand? And though I'm certain that you have imperfect leaders, the vital question is still, how much effort are you giving? How much focus And why wouldn't we invest in listening to Jesus? Because not only are there abundant riches to enjoy, Jesus promises to give us more understanding when we come to him. More will be given. But even that comes with a warning. If we don't, the little that we've had, well, even that can be taken away. So what kind of soil are you? What kind of soil do you want to be? And if we're tempted at this point to think that our commitment to the Bible is still not a big deal, or maybe we're even discouraged by the growth we've seen in ourselves or in others, Jesus finishes with some great promises in the final two parables in verses 26 to 32. Uh, Hopefully you picked it up as Jane read it, that the first parable Jesus gives in verse 26 seems to be very unkind to farmers. A man scatters the seed in verse 26, he goes to bed in verse 27, the seed grows without him knowing, the crop is big, verse 28, and then there's a harvest in verse 29. 
But the point is that the seed grows. And that's what the kingdom of God is like, says Jesus. Growth is inevitable. Despite how it might seem to us, God will grow. God is growing his kingdom. Even if we can't see it around us, or even if what we're hearing ourselves is indifference, rejection, or abandonment of the gospel, God is growing his kingdom and the harvest is coming. The sickle in verse 29, it's actually a picture of judgment when Jesus comes back. So despite the claims of our culture that we need to make sure we're on the right side of history, according to Jesus, there is a certain future and we prepare for it now by listening well. Kingdom growth is certain, but it's also enormous. Now that's the point of the second parable of the mustard seed. In verse 31, the mustard seed, it's proverbially the smallest seed but it grows into a large bush. The kingdom starts small, as we've seen in Mark. Those who respond are few. It might seem small and very insignificant in the eyes of the world, but it's going to grow and it's going to keep growing. And the language there in verse 32 of of branches and birds in the sky nesting in its shade, it's actually language from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel 17 and Daniel 4, a picture of people from all kinds of nations coming to belong to the kingdom of God. And our gathering tonight attests to that reality as we sit here almost 2,000 years later, from 12 fishermen to billions across the world confessing Jesus as Lord. It has grown, and although we might not notice it or be aware of it, it's still growing. The church across the world is growing, even in the hardest places. China, Korea, Iran, the gospel is bearing fruit as people trust in Jesus. These final little parables, these promises, they're designed to lift our eyes to see reality that our listening and responding to God's word is part of God's plans and purposes for the world, to urge us to keep listening and to bear fruit for eternity. But the promise of a growing kingdom is also a great encouragement to sow. Did you notice that as Jesus interprets the parable, he doesn't say that the sower is God? or even himself. It's just the one who speaks the word. And so when it comes to the parable, we are both soil and sowers. Jesus sows the word. As we heard last week in chapter 3, he entrusts the apostles to preach the word. And still today, all Christians who proclaim the good news of Jesus share in sowing the seed. So these parables of chapter 4 urge us, yes, to listen, but to sow as well and to sow broadly and generously. To speak of Jesus, not because we're convinced that the soil is already good, as if we could possibly know, but to sow indiscriminately to all all we can. To sow and to then keep sowing even when there's no response or just indifference. Because the language of sowing, as well as actually just our own experience, 
tells us that from sowing to bearing fruit, it just takes time. So we need to sow and sow and sow. Let's actually invest in telling people the good news of Jesus patiently and persistently. And yes, this should look like your personal evangelism with your friends and with your family. But there are many ways that you can do it here too. We've heard about them tonight. You can sow by serving in Sunday school or kids club or youth group. There's real need in all of them. And they are ministries that are fundamentally about sowing the gospel where you can be supported and trained in doing it, where you can have the joy of sowing with others. We should be eager to sow because Jesus tells us sowing will bear fruit. Not with every person, not always in what we get to see or what we would like, but sowing bears fruit. So we should sow and sow with confidence Not in how persuasive you are, not how much you know, not even your conviction to sow, but with confidence in God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And I think you should ask yourself, if you're a Christian, do you actually believe that? That God will make it grow? That the gospel will that the gospel does bear fruit. Uh, Maybe many of you probably know of the missionary William Carey. Uh, He was a a missionary in the 18th century out of England and he went to India to share the gospel. Uh, When he was in India, he spoke out against uh, social injustices like infanticide and widow burning. There's even a school here in Melbourne named after him. But his main goal in going was to preach the gospel. He worked on Bible translation so that people could understand and read God's word for themselves. And despite his enthusiasm, uh, his trip really was hard work. He went with his wife and children. Uh, Upon arriving, sadly, one of them died. And his wife became horrendously unwell and required significant care the whole time they were there. To make it worse, his ministry partner, a fellow evangelist who went with him, decided it was too hard and just left. For seven years, he did not see a single convert. That is a long time to sow without fruit. In a letter, he wrote, I have no Christian friends. I have a large family and nothing to supply their wants, but I have God, and his word is sure. And then eventually, one by one, slowly but surely, then hundreds became Christian. The gospel bore fruit. But perhaps what he's most well known for is that before he left England, never to return, he preached a final sermon which has really stood out because of its main point, a summary of what he was going for. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. It's a great summary. The seed will find good soil. God's word will bear fruit. So let's sow generously, broadly, patiently. Let's attempt great things for our God because he brings the growth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the privilege of hearing you speak. 
to know it, to be un- understand it, to be transformed by it. And so, Father, we ask, please work in us that we would be good soil who welcome the word and produce fruit. And as we hear tonight, we pray that you would move us to sow, to speak of Jesus with all you bring into our life, knowing that you are the God who brings the growth. The gospel will bear fruit. Give us faithfulness, give us courage to sow, to sow patiently and persistently. And we long, Father, that for many we know and even think of right now that you would bring many to know and trust in Jesus. We ask this for the glory of our Saviour. Amen.